Hello again, everybody. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb, and this is the Transporter Room, the intersection of sports, transness, sci-fi, gaming, all things nerd and geek, and a lot of other stuff. And this week, trans star power with two guests from the sports world, from the trans world, and from the queer world, where if you don't know them, you better ask somebody. If you've never heard their voices, stick around, because these are voices you should hear. Our opening guests recently put their entire life out there. Less than three years ago, Leo Baker was on the cutting edge. They're one of the best skateboarders in the world, and they had a place on Team USA as the sport that they loved would make its debut at the Summer Olympics in Tokyo in 2020. Of course, we all know what happened in 2020. That was the year the world stopped. The COVID crisis postponed the games. But just before the world stopped, Baker put a larger issue ahead of the chase for the gold. They would affirm their truth as transmasculine and non-binary. And after years of competing through dysphoria and doubt, they gave up their place on Team USA to pursue something more important, their own life and their own truth. The story behind the headline is a subject of Stay On Board, the Leo Baker story, a documentary film that debuted on Netflix earlier this month. Now, I've watched this maybe five times. It's more than worth your time, mainly because it's something that right now with the debate going on is something that needs to be heard by many. The words of a trans person stating the facts of their life. And the person who tells this story graces this forum right now. Beaming up from Brooklyn, New York, Leo Baker, welcome to the Transporter Room, Energize. Leo Baker, welcome to the Transporter Room. It's Thank a high honor, high honor to have you here. And right out of the bat, I want you to complete this sentence. The single best thing I've done on a skateboard is blank. Just ride it. <laughs> and that's one I, thing I saw you do throughout the documentary. I mean, you just, it, it's just as if you just jump on the skateboard and ride it. You're like, I'll figure it out when I get, I'll figure it out as we go along. We'll kind of make it up as we go along. One thing I noticed in that documentary is that there was there was no pretension. You just let it fly. Looking at it now, hindsight, what feelings come up for you when you watch it now? And what feelings came up when you watched it the first time, the completed story? Um, I mean, it's just a lot to look back on such an intense part of my life that was really challenging. Um, and then just to see how far I've come, you know, it's like bittersweet. You know, I wouldn't be who I am had I not gone through any of that stuff. So it's cool. It's a cool documentation of like a period of my life that like really was like the most pivotal one up to this point. How did the lockdown affect the affect you and how did it affect the decisions that you made about your life going forward? I mean, it was just nice to have like long term solitude because up to that point, it was like my calendar is just 
full of like flights, like one after another. And like, there was just never a time where I could anticipate like enough rest. And so like prior to lockdown, like weeks before is when I resigned from the USA Olympic team. And then, and then after that, it was like pandemic hit and it was really like, the fact that everything got paused was like a blessing for me to be able to just like focus on what I need to get done and not have to compromise my time in that way anymore. So that was really a good part of it for me. I want to get your thoughts on something that I heard in the documentary. It was someone close to you commenting on the process, making the decision and then not looking back. She said, and I quote, fuck that. It's the biggest punk rock thing you can do. <laughs> Alex, yeah. Yeah. What are what your thoughts on that now looking back on it a couple years down the road? Um, I mean, I got to a point in my life where I always just was like, I'm just going to follow my gut. And a lot of people throughout my life have been like, questioning some decisions I've made because people haven't really gone those routes, but this was the most extreme version of that. And it just is what felt right to me to do. So I don't have a whole lot of like reflection on it. Although I do know that like the moment I made that decision that it was the best for me and for people to recognize like the courage that it took to like go the opposite way of what everybody is telling me to do. It's just nice to be seen in that way. And so I really appreciate the people around me. I love Alex. Like we go really way back and it's just nice that she's still around in my life and has been along this road with me for a long time. So similar to you, I am trans and I'm an athlete. And one thing we both had to go through in our process, and I saw a lot of similarities between yours and mine is that you went through this and at the same time having to compete at the highest level possible shot at the olympics on the line when you were competing prior to transition if you did compartmentalize how did you manage to do it and where did it get hard i mean early on it wasn't super difficult like early mid-20s just because everything was kind of like convoluted and there wasn't a lot of clarity around what I needed to do, but as it got, you know, more clear, um, I mean, it was getting more clear at the same time, like the Olympic hype was like rising. So I was just like, I mean, it was not really, I didn't really, I wasn't able to really compartmentalize it. Like I'd go out there and just be honestly miserable and then just like, can't wait to get home and like not go outside for a long time, you know, and just be like, you know, when I'm alone, I don't have to fucking explain myself. Um, so yeah, it wasn't, it was a pretty dark time, I would say for me, like just being in competitions, especially in the Olympic qualifiers and just knowing like what I know, you know what I mean? What I needed to do, like I'd been aware of it at that point for long enough to be like, this is just not, there is a quote from you in the documentary that struck home to me as you talk about this. Quote, I've served my time. <laughs> yeah. I've served my time. Uh, did, yeah. it, did it feel imprisoning then? 
yeah. How, how did it feel limiting? Well, number one, like, just the fact that, like, the only way to have a career in skating as, like, a non-cis male at that time was to be in competitions. Um, that was extremely limiting because, like, what I'm really passionate about doing is street skating and filming video parts, and so I want to be able to do that. But it was a, I'm always compromising and, like, compromising my street skating because I know I have a competition coming up and I don't want to get injured in case I'm able to, like, win money. But then in that, like, I'm out there and I'm like, well, I don't want to, like, do something too crazy and then I won't be able to, like, film anything. And so to just streamline the focus now, it's, like, such a relief. And just creates a lot of space for me to, like, be creative and set, like, real, like set goals that I, like, wasn't really able to set as far as skate, skating goes. So, yeah, I mean, that's limiting. And then also, like, in competitions, people like start to see a formula and it becomes like the younger kids are learning all the tricks that like the older kids were doing that one. And then I just find that super boring. And so to be in that space and just like, feel like, okay, I can skate this really creatively the way that I normally would and get absolutely nowhere. Or I could like play the game and see if I like win some money and get on the podium. And it's like, that's just not why I skate. So it's like limiting all around. And then like the binary, I mean, it just goes on and on it's like sport and competition. It's like female male. It's like, I'm not even, I want nothing to do with any of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just want to skate, you know, like I don't fucking so in care. Sense, so in sense, is that what skating is for you now? It's, because on one side, people outside like myself, we see the sport, we see the competition, but this is not about sport, competition, and necessarily scores and judges cards. This is this is art. This is passion. This is love. Yeah. This is expression. And within that, what effect has being a part of the Olympics had on had on that whole on that whole dynamic? Well, when the spotlight is so like clear on how much I'm stripped of being creative in those spaces and my like humanity. When I move into like the space I want to be in, I get to really lean into those things that I was aware of not having in that space. So like it's makes, it makes the experience of being where I'm at now, like even more rich because I'm just like super, I just feel really grateful to be able to like just work on skating in the way that I want to do it and not have to compromise that anymore away from getting on the board what's your thoughts on the quote-unquote trans debate now and the heat that it's bringing down on the community man i honestly don't even i'm like speechless about it because i don't really know like i've been a trans person in competitions And for me, as someone who's more of, like, an artist type, I don't really, like, care that much about, you know, the sport aspect of it, the competition aspect of it. But for those of us who are interested in competing, and, I mean, I can't, I don't know, I can't really speak that much to it because it's just not, like, I don't understand what it would be like to actually want to do that. Um, And obviously, it's... I don't know what the answers are. Like, 
as far as trans people and being in sport, but I just feel like everyone should be able to fucking play. Like, and if we start with that, like, foundation and just figure it out, then it shouldn't be that difficult. But, like, to, like, go as far as, like, banning kids from being able to play at all, like, I just, that's, like, obviously that's fucking ridiculous, you know? And that's, like, really... I mean, that's as far as I've gotten to it. It's just like, there has to be a way to figure it out if people would just like come together and have some compassion and just be like, well, we all want to play. So let's fucking figure it out. One thing watching it for me that struck me was this thing dug deep. This thing dug in places that I was wondering if somebody wanted to do a documentary on me, I couldn't see them digging. I wouldn't, I wouldn't let them dig as deep on me as to the level of access that you dug. Was there ever a point in building this where you said, get these cameras out of my face, get out of here. I need away from you. Was there ever a point where you're thinking this is getting too deep in the derma? No, I mean, as far as sharing and being transparent about what I'm going through, I always felt like that was like the most valuable way to do this. And if I was to sacrifice any information, it just wouldn't be as rich and informative and real as it was. Um, but I do have to say also that emoting 100% all the time and being available in that way is like very taxing on me and like my nervous system and like, you know, it's, it, it's extreme. It's just like a really extreme experience. And so at this point now that that's done, I'm just so ready to like, stop talking and like just focus on skating and focus on my creativity and like, you know, pass the fucking torch. <laughs> like, I feel like I did the work. I'm like, I don't need to do any more of it. So what's, next? So what's next for you? I know you've got, you got, you got, you got a skateboard company that that's, that's starting off as a startup. I mean, but beyond that, what's next? Cause I don't think we've heard the last of you. No, <laughs> we're like at the new beginning. Um, more skating, video parts. I'm, I'm like finishing a part right now and then I'm going to start another one immediately that will come out next fall for skating. And then glue, we're, gr we're growing the company. We're going to be going on trips, film a glue video that's coming. Um, I'm working on music, so I'm going to release some music pretty soon here. We're like tightening up on some promo stuff for the EP. So that's coming. Um, and what else? I forgot. There was something else, and now I can't remember what it was. <laughs> There's a lot. Yeah, just, and, and like, honestly, just trying to stay centered. Like, being in the gym, taking care of my body, taking care of my mind so that I can show up for the things that are important. And I think that's it. I don't know. There's a lot of shit. It's <laughs> just, like, the most solid time, honestly. Well, Exit question. What's the biggest thing that you're hoping trans people take from this peak inside your life the last few years? And what's the biggest thing you're hoping that cisgender people take from it? Um, I mean, as far as trans folks go, like, and I know that deep down we all know this, but it's like my path was only one version and it just takes time to sort through and, and like, get tapped into what your gender experience is. 
And there's going to be a lot of different iterations of it. You know, people, it's like a fluid experience, not, not for everyone, but I know a lot of people whose experience is very fluid. And for me, it was that way. And now I kind of feel like I've landed where it makes the most sense, but that could evolve too. And so just understanding that nothing is ever going to be like a fixed, final, rigid outcome and to just like be compassionate with the feelings when they're hard. I don't know. Like that's like, if somebody told me that, like when I needed to hear it, that would have helped me a lot. And yeah, as far as like the cis community, I feel like just compassion and awareness for, you know, people who like have expansive genders that go way far beyond like the basic bleak construct of like, heteronormativity like there's so much more to be explored and i think when that from that paradigm of thinking people can really develop a sense of like curiosity versus like knowing or thinking they know everything i'm like i'm trans and i don't know anything still i mean, I know what i know about me but there's just a lot it's a very rich topic i mean everything it's really goes really deep. It can go as deep as you want to go with it. So well I can tell you one thing. You got you got quite deep and I can say as a journalist and as an athlete, I was appreciative of that window inside because there was a lot there for me and there was a lot that affected me. So Leo, thank you for doing it. Thank you for sharing that story and thank you for being a part of the transporter room this week. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And you're hearing the red alert klaxon. You know what that means. It is time to take a break, give love to the sponsors. But when we come back, we go from skateboards to bikes and looking in on a folk hero of cycling who's looking to make their sport more inclusive. That and more to come. I'm Carly Chardonnay-Webb. This is the Transporter Room. Stay with us. And welcome back to the Transporter Room. I'm your host, Carly Chardonnay-Webb. And in our feature interview this week, or or co-feature interview this week, given the immense trans star power that we have, we're delving into the world of cycling. And American cycling, in many respects, is marked by a mix of trailblazers, folk heroes, and mavericks. From Major Taylor in the early 1900s, forward to Team Slurpee in the 1980s, to Greg LeMond on a ring, a prayer, and tri-bars, writing what I still call the greatest ride an American has made since Paul Revere at the Tour de France in 1989. And in between and beyond, you can also mix in mountain bikers, pedaled hair scramblers, cyclocrossers, and the revival of the gravel explosion to cycling, not only here, but around the world. And within all that lies a woman named Molly Cameron. If you said that Molly Cameron was punk AF, it would be an understatement. She's been racing bikes for more than 25 years, and at the same time, navigating her transition and also racing until she was told she couldn't do it authentically. She went away from the sport for a time, 
started a bike shop, did some other things, but came back to it. Racing in the men's category when she came back, and guess what? She kicked butt there too. But with the issue of trans inclusion becoming white hot in the last few years, an athlete who in the past tried to stay above the fray waded into it and waded into it with a plan. From organizing efforts to teach and learn as an athlete and as a person in the industry, to now as the founder of Respect, Inspiring Diversity and Equality, or RIDE, in 2021. The goal of RIDE is moving diversity and equality and inclusion from being buzzword corporate speak to becoming practice and results. Do you want to know more? I think you should and get it from the source. Beaming up live from Portland, Oregon, the Molly Cameron. Welcome to the Transporter Room, Energize. Can I say hello now? Yes, you can. <laughs> <laughs> that that intro was incredible. And I also, I think that this is the first time I've had another trans woman like introduce me or like interview me officially on you know a queer platform um i like my heart is buzzing right now that, <laughs> that intro was too- fire i was i i seriously i want to see i get a transcription of that i want to use that as like my intro for everything and be like here just read this like that was amazing you're a folk hero in this sport and for those of you who want to know more there was an excellent article in Bicycling Magazine a couple months ago on Molly Cameron that was written by brilliant writer and friend of the podcast, Frankie De La Creta. Check that out. And the Ian Boswell podcast, Breakfast with Boz. We're going to put links to both of those in the liner notes at our Twitter page here. Before we get into the serious stuff, these last couple months, you've been powering in the saddle. I mean, you've hit gravel races here and around the world, and you went over to Finland recently and did a duathlon. I didn't know that Formula One driver Valtteri Bodas from Team Alfa Romeo has his own duathlon. I just want to let you know right now, I want to do it. <laughs> what was it like? What was it like being in Scandinavia and racing there? It wasn't. It like really was incredible, and I didn't even know. Valtteri Botas had a duathlon until a week before the event. And uh, I, I saw him in Steamboat Springs at SBT Gravel. And I was like, hey, and he and I have become, you know, very, very lightly friendly at bike races. I've seen him at bike races a bunch. He's he's in love with bike racing. It's crazy. He's just like a new bike racer. and He's so excited. And so <clears throat> we would see each other and hang out and talk a little bit. You know, like you're friendly at some bike races, you know, with new friends or whatever. And then uh, I was like, hey, Valtteri, I'm coming over for... So the reason I went to Finland was to be a part of a test event. So he is going to put on a gravel event. Well, he, he is going to work with the SBT gravel crew, Amy Charity and um, and Micah and Chris. And they are going to help him put on a gravel event next year in 2023. So I got invited to go over and do the test event, which was great. And I was really excited just to go over. I haven't, I lived in Europe as a kid and I raced in Europe, you know, in the mid two thousands, uh, raced some cyclocross and, uh, 
I haven't been over as an adult, you know, like just to go over in the summer. So going over to Europe in the summer was amazing. And, you know, we get there and then we do a ride and we do a little ride with Valtteri around, you know, his hometown. And he's, and I was kind of like, well, Hey, you know, what's the week like, what's the rest of the weekend like? And he's like, well, you know, we're going to do the big test event on Saturday. And then Sunday I have to do my duathlon. And then I was like, your duathlon he's like yes i have a duathlon and it's a charity family thing yada yada he's like you have to come do it okay so i i make it no secret i don't like running at all i run for training for cyclocross i don't really even like walking that much i'm old it hurts my back i don't like standing around and walking so luckily it was a a a very short like a 5k run and like a 20 or 30k bike and then another 3k run and it was off-road so i said yes not knowing if i could even finish running five or eight k or whatever and Oh gosh, it just, you know, it, it wasn't about racing glory. It was so my experience at that event was wild because we showed up and there's families and you know, and again, we're in Finland and it's, you know, I don't speak any Finnish, but all the Finns speak perfect English. And I also I'm really conscious, you know, obviously I'm really conscious of my identity and like who I am, but yeah, a big thing for me with activism and specifically, you know, LGBTQIA or like trans activism is I don't want to ram it down anybody's throat. My intent wasn't to like go to this charity family kind of theme to Athlon and like wear a trans pride jersey and, you know, shout from the rafters. I'm trans. My intent is just, just like just like any other participant or pro that's there, just kind of be there. Like, I want to get to know the community. You know, like I'm only here for a week right now. I'm definitely going to come back next year, but I want to start to get to know people. And like, uh, again, like authentically and organically network. You know, I'm not out there handing out business cards. I'm just like hanging out with families, you know, getting to know the volunteers and the people that are at the event, because I know they all live there in the region, like in, in Lati and in, um, Nastola is another little town there. Anyways, you know, I've never done a duathlon or triathlon in my entire life. Uh, so I got the rundown of like how to do the exchanges and like where to put your, I didn't even know where to put my bike or gear in the transition <laughs> zone. I mean, if it was a bigger, like big deal pro race, it would have been a disaster. But it was like the Finns are all really welcoming and, and it helps they all speak English. They showed me how to do it, you know okay, we go up there, you know, you do a few laps of the run in the woods and you come back in your bike, you do some bike stuff. Um, and I get done and like, I didn't, you know, again, I didn't really, I wasn't really hyper-focused on this event as like a bike race or as a race that I was like trying to win. I mean, you know, trying to participate in and we get done and then, you know, someone's like, Hey, you got second place in the podium in the women's race. And I'm like, Oh my God, that's amazing. And I get up on the podium and I haven't had a single conversation with Valtteri or any of his staff. You know, I kind of know some of these people now because they've coordinated us being at the event and being there for the week. Um, I haven't had a conversation about my gender or my pronouns. You know, they are listed in my email signature. So at the minimum, you know, uh, these people that I've been talking with and working with in Finland know that I use she, her pronouns if they happen to look at my signature, email signature. So anyways, I get on the podium. And uh, Vile, the announcer, who's the race organizer, is like, you know, announcing, you know, and here's third place, Finnish woman, and then here in second place, and he misgendered me, and then immediately corrected it himself. 
So that was wild. And I just like, there was no big conversation. It wasn't a big thing. This race announcer who has like met me once on that race day, and we've emailed a few times, you know, misgenders me, corrects himself immediately. Like before he even left his lips, he said she, and he didn't even like make a big apology. He was just like, just said she, you know, it was like he handled it the right way. Seriously, straight up. Like it was so fucking refreshing. And I wish like, I talked about it a little while I was there with the people I was with, you know, um, some of my sponsors and friends. And I was like, look like that. Yeah. That's just handling it the right way. There was no big discussion. They didn't ask me to verify or validate my gender. Uh, when I registered for the race, it was like a non-issue. So you have that experience in Finland, but also you've been racing here. And for example, you've been like hitting the gravel and you've been everywhere. I mean, racing in Idaho, racing in Kansas, racing here, there and everywhere. And there's something that was in your social media that, that really came out to me. I am choosing to deal with the emotionally draining, exhausting fallout and scrutiny that comes with participating in women's events, regardless of my result. And there was a key, and there was the next sentence that also struck me because this is what inclusion looks like. What is, what's lacking in this country in regards to that understanding? Like, you know, there's such a sense of entitlement in the U.S. and it can be like, I think there's a per- people are very personally entitled. Some people, this isn't like a blanket, everybody. But then also, I feel like Americans really like, it just feels like people need to feel this sense of ownership over something, you know, whether it's an idea or a say bikes and sport, you know, or it's like Americans want this to be like their thing, whether it's their home or their personal property or their cars or their bikes. Um <clears throat> you know, sports teams, I never really understood like major league sports. I get it, probably because I didn't grow up in the US when I was like a lot younger. And so I like I, I never got it. I was like, why did people in Denver give a shit about the Broncos? Like, I never really made sense. And so this kind of jingoistic, like, nationalism thing isn't something I grew up with. There's a lot of fear and entitlement. And the fear comes from like, losing something or the degradation of this sense of like this thing that is yours. So I do feel like Americans have this sense of entitlement and they apply it to so many different things. Womanhood, you know, I think that many women feel like this sense of ownership and entitlement to womanhood. And there will be a specific you know, it's funny because like, you could say, well, you could challenge a woman and say, well, define, tell me what a woman is. And then, you know, we, we have, no, that, that's I, I, I that's imagine you and I have heard it all. Yes. I mean, after all, you know, Matt Walsh is trying to make a, like a movie career out of it. So shit. <laughs> I'm just, uh, but within that though, because there's something you say often, you've never led with my identity or my politics. Direct yeah. quote yeah. from the bicycling article. But. At the same time, even with that, what propelled you to start this effort in the form of ride that you started? Well, that goes back to, gosh, a year and a half ago with the governor of Arkansas. Then Governor Asa Asa Hutchinson signed the first of, was it five, pieces of legislation into law. And my phone just started blowing up. And then 
it was tied into the World Cyclocross Championships happening in Fayetteville, which happened this January. Timeline is like it's easy when you write it down or look at it, but the timeline was that was you know a little less than a year out from these World Championships in the state that now is basically effectively like banning and making trans kids and everything illegal and it was much more than like a bathroom bill it was like specifically anti-trans legislation that was now law and is now law still in the state um and so it's this horrific thing and i got honestly um totally just sucked into it and i didn't get sucked into it and then go oh i'm gonna start uh, i'm gonna start an organization um it was that like a month and a half went by and I was like, holy crap, I'm just at my phone and computer every day doing work on this and like doing advocacy work and like talking to brands, talking to USA Cycling, trying to connect with the UCI, like trying to talk to everybody to like figure out this thing in Arkansas and the thing being the world champs. So a little time went on and I was like, I need to, like, I'm, I'm pretty good at this work, you know, and it helps that like I have been around for a long time. I've been in the sport for a long time. I've been in the industry for a long time. And and I'm also a person I'm I I don't like I don't like non-tangibles. I like clear goals and like okay, what's what's the point here? Do we want to protest the world championships or do we want to amplify like the good work that you know, queers and LGBTQ and trans folks and orgs are already doing in Arkansas. Anyways, I went down and I was like, you know, if if the queers in Arkansas are like, fuck cyclocross, fuck the world championships, fuck this, let's burn it all down. That was going to be the messaging I was going to take back to cycling and kind of be like, well, look, like there's no support for this on the ground, you know, like, but the opposite happened. I went down and they were like, yes, we want this to happen. It's fine. You know, like, look, we're being, oh, you know, we're being oppressed in a million different ways. And this race happening or not is kind of nothing. So let's use this and see if we can't use this to draw some positive attention and lift, you know, and it, we knocked it out of the park. I had a bunch of trans pride wristbands and we had them everywhere. I was like, okay, I'm going to put them everywhere where people have to come and enter and they're free. Like you can, if you want, you can make a donation. There's a QR code, but like, I just wanted them there for people to take and wear. I mean, any photo you see from the world championships, you see someone wearing a ride wristband, you know, a wrist trans pride wristband on their wrist. Um, the presenters at the podium were wearing them on the podium the whole weekend. So every time there was a podium, there's that presence on there. Um, the, uh, Amer the U.S. team landed on the podium the first day of the event. It's like a three-day, you know, weekend of, of of different racing categories. I think in the team relay, I think they got second or third. And you know, I didn't ask. This is my style too. You know, and my my approach is like I'm not out there asking people to wear these. I just say, like, I just present them and make them there. If you had to give the cycling industry and the people you've worked with, people you've talked to, say a report card on the effort. What would the grades be? What would the mm. comments from the teacher, namely you, be? Oh, I like that, actually. That is great. Uh, I would give everybody a D. Um, D. Th there are, again, like any classroom, there's some students that are killing it. They're exceptional. Um, I've never done any grading, so I don't know about the bell curve or anything or how to work that out. But I would say, you know what? There's a few students here in cycling that are 
I would give them an A minus, you know, maybe a B plus. Say, all right, y'all are doing all right. You're working on it. I can see the work. Yeah, I can see the work here in your, in your, but, you know, we're not quite there. We're not knocking out of the park. Yeah, those students, nobody's got a grade A. There's, you know, and that's partly because the whole industry can't, I mean, it's just the culture of the industry and business and sport, certainly in North America and the way everything's run and set up. I mean, this also just goes into like capitalism and a whole other thing. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, but I would give the class a D. I would be like, look, y'all, like a lot of them, I don't, there's no work. I can't even see. Again, even me, who's behind the scenes and stuff, you're talking the talk, but no one's walking the walk. Very few. What does walking the walk mean to you when you're when you say that? What are you driving at? I mean, that experience I had in Finland. Again, like I didn't as a participant. It doesn't matter if I'm Molly Cameron or I'm just some, you know, Finnish mom out there that wants to hop into her first duathlon. Like no one questioned my gender. No one gave me a hard time. And and I'm also saying I know that's partly because of who I am. Like. Sure, when I go to a bike race, or especially if the, the, an organizing committee or a race knows I'm coming, like there's some interaction, they know I'm coming, and they'll there's a little bit of a heads up and a whatever, but that should apply to any participant. And even at the professional and the elite level, I mean, I, I, the last three days, I've had conversations with elite level trans athletes, and we're just talking about how. In, it's not embarrassing isn't the right word, but just how violating it is to be an elite level, a world level professional athlete in cycling and, you know, anywhere in the world and to get your license and all this, you know, it's just this kind of intense violation of privacy. Again, we were saying earlier, it doesn't matter what's, what your bits are, what's between your legs, what your biology is. It's this slippery fucking slope where, as we saw in Utah a few weeks ago, this ends up becoming, I mean, it already is a war on women, but it, it, it ends up just becoming this attack on women and girls and this insane scrutiny. So a few weeks ago in Utah, in a, it was, I, I forget if it was high school. I don't even think it, it was, was high school. school. It was okay. high school. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. You know exactly and, what you're talking about. You know, I want to know, gut reaction is an athlete. Take the ride hat off. Yeah. Take everything off. Just give me Molly Cameron, who like who's punk AF and likes to race bikes. Your thoughts on what went down in Utah, and also your thoughts on what's going down with the UCI in regards to the what I call the Emily Bridges rule, things like that, because it's all connected. Just gut reaction. Yeah, that's horrific. I mean, like I saw that news, and I knew, you know. We know what's going on. I'm reading between the lines. I'm like, this is fucking bonkers. That's and, putting it mildly. And, and, and but the, this is no more or less bonkers than like school kids getting killed by gun violence and like nothing's fucking happening. You know, they finally we got some federal, you know, high level gun reform. It's like, no, these incidences are palatable to the public because of that fear and entitlement piece. You know, people think that we're entitled to this version, whatever each individual. This is another thing I've learned about certainly Americans is everybody's version of 
what things should be and how they should be is what they think is the right version. And, and it's wild. And so as Americans, I feel like we just move through the world and everybody's got their own version of like what reality is and how the world should be. And it's unusual for us to like come together and agree on something and be like, oh, right, like that's acceptable. You've seen so many horror, I mean, these clips of these, you know, white Karens out there with guns and they're screaming at this like person of color in a parking lot. And the, the, the dude's just like, yo, I'm walking to my car. Like, I just bought groceries and she's freaking out. Like, and Molly, you and saw like, that. You saw that last fall at the USA Cycling Cyclocross Championships in Illinois. Where yes, so, you saw, yes. we're going to call a, I know. And this yeah, show, we, we call them what they are. Yes, yeah. a certain group of Karens, mainly based yes. from Minnesota, coming oh. down and not only, and not only, picketing which is the right to do but literally coming on the race course well here's the thing about freedom of speech it's a right on uh, this is the i mean again now we're talking about legalities and and rights in america my issue with the usa cycling side cross national championships last year is it was a private event you had to pay to enter that event or you're a vip you had a pass there is two checkpoints to get into that event and getting in any other way would have been like sneaking in, you know, it wasn't a like secure closed compound, but there was a fence and a perimeter. Like you would have had to hop a fence and like walk through a field or you're going through the one main gate. So every person that's in there, you're now in a private event on private property. Freedom of speech doesn't actually apply the way most Americans think it does. The property owners, the event pr promoters, hell, even, even me as a paying USA Cycling and UCI license holder, I could have just been like, I mean, I did. I was like, this doesn't fly. They need to go. And that's the thing. That's not freedom of speech. Freedom of speech is standing outside of that gate, off of the private property, off of the private event. They could pick it out front of that gate all fucking day long. That is perfectly fine, perfectly legal. USA Cycling knows they made missteps at the Cyclocross National Championships, but I didn't make a whole lot of noise at the time. You know, I wasn't going to blow them up on social media and be like, this was a disaster. When really it was. But you and, did say something strident. Yeah. Because I mean, yeah. you did. If nothing else, you made a strident point to say that a queer community stood up as that, a community. Yeah. And that really was true and so lucky. I mean, <clears throat> You know, national championships happen everywhere. It was really lucky that that was like just outside of Chicago and there are a ton of queers and a ton of people of color and queer people of color. And like, there are a lot of, I would loosely say like allies that were like, fuck this and went and like handled it. And like, no one started a fight or did anything dramatic. Um, but yeah, that, <clears throat> you know, again, like, I'm really glad to have seen USA Cycling in this year. They've really taken a huge step back from trying to be an advocacy organization. If you look at USA Cycling and what they've been doing in this calendar year, it's just they went right back to bike racing. And that's because the new CEO, and I have, I have a good relationship, and I've had long relationships with most of the people that are at USA Cycling, and I know the new CEO, and like we have a functional, like, good relationship. And you know, I didn't have to tell him. I was telling the last CEO, I was like, you need to step back from this advocacy. You guys are bad at it. You don't have enough money to hire good people to do it right. And you're just fumbling it. Just step back. Just be USA Cycling. Put on bike races. Do sanctioning. Like, let's work on that. Let's work on like 
your policies and the language and and how your staff interface with transgender athletes and you know in cisgender athletes like there's a lot of work that needs to be done there stop trying to be an av- national advocacy body and and they haven't so i think they're like they're running a little smoother now and it also benefits them to keep their nose out of this stuff because they're shitty at it and they just fuck it up but yeah at the time the new ceo had literally like just come in and then that happened and you know, behind the scenes and publicly, they're like, yeah, we could have handled it differently. We know that now. We're prepared now, you know, and I'm. But if that's the case, because I'm going to I'm going to ask the question. Yeah, please. Here. If that is the case that, as you said, as you were quoted saying in the bicycling article, none of these governing bodies are going to be efficient social justice orgs. And there's a lot of truth to that. But if that is the case, for example, me being me being trans, me being black, me being a cyclist, um, what part does a governing body play then? And making sure that that competitive landscape, that cycling landscape is open to me, for example. Yeah. Well, that's why the class gets a D. Because <laughs> there's so much work to do. And the... the yeah, this is exhausting because I've someone pointed out just the last week or two, somebody was like, yeah, you've just been doing the same thing you've been doing for 20 years. Like, I'm like, yeah, I have been doing this advocacy work in a less public manner for 20 years. And it's really due to Black Lives. Th- like, again, like, I, I hate just saying Black Lives Matter it changed everything. But like, there's a lot of pieces there. That's a whole other podcast we could talk about that social justice and racial justice movement and that year and but how that how did that influence you well that like just influenced the class as we're saying the brands and the industry everywhere i mean that was that affected the whole u.s and then me being in portland and portland being this liberal white liberal hotbed like it's easy for white folks to do lefty liberal shit here that makes us all feel good and we're lifting stuff up. But then I'm like, we're in like the least racially diverse city in the United States. There's certain people like you and Juniper Simone should compare notes sometime. (laughs) I mean, uh, (sighs) so God, what what was the, what was the, no, no, the main thing is no, the main thing we're getting at, though, because you're saying that's where the class gets a D. Yeah. Yeah, because there's how still can the so class get work? Well, what what work? Where's the work going now? And and that's in many ways what it comes back to is where does the work need to go? Because I'm just I'm going to say this: you you may not be able to say it. I will. USA Cycling screwed the pooch. For example, I think UCI screwed the pooch with the with with the ridiculous amount of flaming hoops that they've made Emily Bridges go through. Yeah. I think that a lot, a lot of this legislation, and I think that I have a, I have a feeling that to me, what happened in Illinois last fall and what happened to Leah Thomas at NCAAs last year has a direct knock on effect to the rules that UCI is making, that world triathlons making that a lot of these governing bodies are making. There's a lot of fear out there. And I'm sure that that I'm sure that the brands are saying that fear. It's like I don't think SRAM for example 
wants to see Bethy Stelzer at the front door of their components factory with Save Women's Sports Signs. I don't think they I don't think that they want to get nasty grants from Inga Thompson. You know, uh, where do they get? I mean, how do you know they what? get go from a D to at least a B? Sure, this this could be. So I'm sure some. I like to think some. You know, hopefully when this is out, some bike industry folks and people on brands and orgs I'm working with will maybe give this a listen. Uh, and you know, it is. Uh, I hate saying these little cliches like walk the walk, you know, don't talk, you're going to talk the talk, you got to walk the walk. And that really is the truth of it. I want, I'm trying to, I want to come up with like a couple concrete things and. Mm. Oh, I just want them to, I'll tell you, I just want them to speak out. <laughs> for example, I just want to see, I want to yeah. see, for example, my, I want to see bike manufacturers just tell the UCI, uh, no, rethink this. Yeah. This is not good for any this is not good for any of us. I would have liked to have seen when it was great to see fans do it, for example, last year. It was great seeing you come out and saying our queer family came out as a unified front. But I would have liked say I would have liked a bike manufacturer to say say this was wrong and it, this this was dead flat out wrong. Yeah. Regular. I'd like to see I'd like to see gov now what I would like to see a governing body do is this. Defend your regulations. Say no. Here's what our regulations are. This, they've been on the books this long. This is what the results been. We're going to stay we're going to stay with these regulations. If you have a problem, there is a process. And we'll talk to you, but you will not dive in front of Austin Killips during a race. So that's exactly, I love that you said that because that last point specifically in defending your regulations is something that the last two years, one of the first conversations I had with USA Cycling's previous CEO, you know, eventually when all this trans stuff was happening in Arkansas, he called me up, oh, the world champs, well, you know, like just, it was a friendly call. I just wanted to, I hadn't really talked to him in his tenure at all. And then I was like, look, kind of to this defend your regulation you already have policies and rules and you have had these rules for decades regarding transgender participation why don't i fly to colorado springs hell i can produce and edit a video and it could just be me it doesn't even have to be me but a transgender athlete who's a uci and usa cycling member and a member of your staff and we can just do a video and we can just explain the rules they already exist and then that will serve to like help educate the community that needs it, needs to see it. We'll put it on YouTube. You can post it up on your website. All we're doing is explain the rules that are buried in your rule book, in your policies for trans participation. And that will also help to, like you said, have the org stand up and say, you know, it would benefit them to be like, hey, we do include people. We want to be inclusive. And then that shows the, you know, the trans exclusive radical feminists and you know the turfs and the the transphobes out there that are actively lobbying against trans people in their lives and would say no usa cycling actually wants us here and wants us participating and here are the guidelines for the participation it's pretty simple and like they wouldn't even do that so brands are so afraid because this is still so politicized they're paralyzed paralyzed and that is like consistent throughout 
the cycling industry and sport as in the last year or two, as I've been working with more kind of general outdoor industry stuff, like whether it's like rock climbing or just outdoorsy stuff, snow sports, like those industries are kind of like five years ahead of us. It's really wild. And talking to a lot of advocates and activists and policymakers that were in, have been in the outdoor industry. And there's a hell of a lot of like women of color and queers. Um, they're like, yeah, this was the outdoor industry and the snow sports industry and like rock climbing like five years ago. And then like, there's still a ton of work to do, but you know, cycling it needs to kind of get caught up where this stuff isn't political, but it still is. I mean, that's the thing. That's why everybody gets a D like this stuff is still seen as political. There's still this like, what if, you know, these anti-trans orgs and about, I, I know for a fact that, you know, well, they just it, had a major meeting in Las Vegas a couple months ago. So, so they're, it's just, they're coming together and building coalition. Oh, they're like beyond that. They have coalition. They have coalition. They have a lot of money. They have a lot of old white money. And like, that's the thing is like, I always with everything, I'm like, follow the money. There are reasons. The reason why everything happens, certainly in North America is money. Um, It's really been uh, eye opening to me. When I have conversations with a lot of these C-suite and executives, someone like Inga Thompson, who was like, you know, a good professional cyclist in her day and was like, I, I don't remember her whole Palmares, but, you know, she was probably went to the Olympics. I think she was national champ multiple times. I don't think she was ever a world champ, but she was like a really good pro. That athletic authenticity, like that was 20 years ago. That still holds sway over the, I say the 50, you know, the, the 50 to 80 year old white male demographic that runs fucking everything, runs all the brands. I mean, they're, they run all of the cycling brands. They, they are, you know, the CEOs and the VPs, the C-suite leadership and managers and all these brands still like she is so out of touch with cycling and hasn't been involved in cycling or women's cycling in any way at all. You know, having a foundation with your name on it, like she hasn't been contributing anything to the sport in a positive way for decades. This is also very common with pro athletes and a lot of female pro athletes where it's me, 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 me. It's all about you and yourself and the sport, you know, until, and then when you're done being an athlete, you just like peace out and don't give shit to the sport, but then want to come back and criticize it and point fingers. And, you know, and I'm like, show me something fucking positive you've done, you know, like anything, you know, like, and those people, that type of person, and there's a lot of them, there are a lot of older female pros that may or may not have ever raced with a trans woman. Like, again, it's this entitlement piece and this purity of idea and concept that these older pros, like, they still want it to be the way it was for them 20 or 30 years ago when they were racing. Like, they, and they're trying to, like, keep this purity of, like, this ideal of how it was and that's how it should be well that's the same shit that like these old white dudes are doing that are all in the leadership and you know again it's like i try to be like hey like i don't hate white men like i'm here to help everybody get better and i'm constantly learning but the world has changed and it's changing and it's positive and it's really amazing and Again, the leadership of these big brands, and these are the companies that actually have money and have budgets and affect national policy and cycling and in the sport and you know really behind the scenes. They the 
the turfs of the world have their ear. I've had conversations and then, you know, this info will come out and it's like, no, they still think that that woman who has been, or these women or whomever, women and men that are so out of touch and haven't been involved in cycling at any level in anything in the sport, they still have more sporting authenticity and sway with that generation of the leadership than any of us do. I mean, you look at Lance Armstrong, the guy is still popular. He's a fucking con man and a narcissist and a toxic person and has been for decades. People still glom onto him, you know, and like, it's incredible. That dude still has sway. You know, he's not an untouchable. There was like a period of time where he was untouchable. And it's like, no, and that's a really weird and messed up thing about this sport. But I can tell you the positive thing is that like, well, on the flip side, there is there are new events coming up. There are new people coming in. That's actually something I was thinking about talking about at this conference in a couple weeks is we're here now. Like the class is getting a D. The outside world, I'm giving them a C plus. Like the world is it's happening. Like again, like I'm racing in women's events now and it's fine. And I'm choosing to do that. I'm choosing to deal with the fucking headache and the heartache again. And, you know, everybody's freaking out like it's this new thing. And I'm like, no, there have, again, you talk about the education and defending your regulations. It's like, yeah, there's been policies and regulations. All these events have them. All these events now are realizing that like, hey, it's cool to be inclusive. That's a lot of the work I've been doing with Ride. And it's definitely uh, mostly an uphill battle. But, you know, once people do it, once people, people being event promoters or or brands, they're like, this is awesome. This is great and so fun. And look at like how happy people are and how easy this was, whether it's a professional level event or participants or just like amateurs. The big brands are so married to uh, someone that was an Olympics Olympic team member 25, 30 years ago. Like that holds more sway than them like opening up the doors of their office and then looking at what's actually happening on the ground, you know, and it's really funny. I had an event promoter tell me this year, well, we're just not quite there yet. And I was like, no, we're here now. Like, this is happening. You can't delay on this anymore. Like, this is all real and happening. There are transgender men and women and non-binary folks, and we're all here right now. And what are you doing? Like, there's no more delay. Like, that ship has sailed. And also, there's also series that are actually building this. Things like Thundercrit over in the UK, mm-hmm. they're actually building regulations. Now, with that in mind, though, since we're kept Coming into the home stretch here, yeah, want to filter back a little bit into your own story. Mm-hmm. How do you answer to those to certain people who are going to say and look at your record and say, "Wait a minute, Molly Cameron, you were racing against men and you won." See, 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 trans women are really men. You got you need to be competing in your quote unquote proper sex class. How do you answer to those who may who may step to you with that? Yeah, I get stepped to with that one a lot. I just, I've been, uh, if if it's an intimate relationship, you know, if it's someone I know, I mean, I've had sponsors, again, Spartans, partners I've been with a long time, I've had to have these kind of conversations. And I just say, look, I'm, I've been on hormone replacement therapy for better part of 25 years, since the 90s. And that, again, you said earlier, I'm willing to talk about this with people that I have a relationship with, like intimately, right? But publicly, it's no, but not anybody's business. Because then you look at what happened in 
Utah two weeks ago. High school girl had her gender checked. Gender checked. Like an investigation was put into this poor girl and her parents. By law. You know? Remember, by, by fucking law. By, by law. Which is insane. And again, I say this shit and I want it to have a lot of impact. I'm like, the United States doesn't give a shit about women. It really doesn't give a shit about trans women. Really doesn't give a shit about trans women of color. Like, we are like. No, you think. <laughs> It just it, it does kill me and it can be disheartening but the thing i say to folks is like look i can women can enter men's races and you got to keep in mind i was forced to race in men's races um the the rules when they changed and i can't fucking remember you might know it was like oh four or five or six that was when, when you got the tap on the shoulder because i remember from the quite bike literally bike. quite literally, literally got a tap got on the, the shoulder tap. I was Oregon Bike Racing Association. Oh, yeah, you did. Your literally research. comes up to you yeah. and they say, um, "Excuse me, Mallory, Molly, we got to talk." Um, well, they, they were just like, "You need to have a doctor's note that you have a vagina." And I looked at this woman who I'd known her for a few years, and you know, we still like I still know her, and she, you know, she and I was like, "I don't have a note on me that says I have a vagina, but you know that we had talked about all of this." Is like, you know, I'm on HRT and like. Well, this new change came down, you know, and we're following the new UCI, IOC, USA Cycling policy. And it is basically that you have to have had general reassignment surgery. And I was like, well, I don't have 50 grand to go and get a vagina. If I did, I would. And yeah, that's when I like stepped away from the sport for a little while. Because it was just kind of like, they were like, well, sorry. And I was like, well, I guess I'm going to appeal. And then, you know, I went and I think I appealed to USA Cycling and they were just like, yeah, sorry. Reading your story, it's like you went from riot girl to racing bikes. You charged into your truth. What mm. led you to make that decision to say, I need to move forward with this thing? And where did gears and chains play into that? And I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a little piece of my own history here to, to really yeah. get you to understand where I'm coming from. It was a bicycle that led me into my truth. Yeah. It was a it was owning it was owning my first road bike. Yeah. And actually strangely enough, this is what's wild. The first race I ever did on that bike was a was a duathlon. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's with, great. With great Shimano 105 components, I might add. Yes, yeah, Shane's plug. <laughs> but, but that's what led me into my own truth. For you, what what led you to move forward? And you moved forward long before the tipping point, long before the time covers, long before yeah. this was a thing oh. and this was an issue. I you gotta remember too, I talk about this a lot. I grew up in the military. I grew up with don't ask, don't tell that policy, which was like you just don't talk. I mean, this is what's happening in Florida, you know, you just don't talk. they're trying to erase our identities and Again, the LGBTQIA, anything. You don't talk about it. So I, I lived overseas in Belgium and then in Turkey. And then we, my, my sister and I were with my dad in Turkey. We got shipped back to the U.S. I think it was like the first Gulf War was ramping up. And they, they were like, kids, you know, we got to ship all the dependents and the kids and everybody out. Only active duty in Turkey on the base. We came back to the U.S. And it was like culture shock for me. I mean, I'd been living overseas for know five or six years as a kid so i came over as like a 12 year old or something back to the u.s i was i grew up southern baptist so i was strangely like deeply religious 
though I also like hated the church and had like horrific experiences, which I have not talked about at all publicly, but you know, it was a, I was like many youth struggling with, for identity. It was a really wild time. I mean, that would have been the early nineties, late eighties or early nineties. I don't remember when I moved back to, went back to the, to, I ended up in Delaware. I was in Newark, Delaware, but it was skateboard. I started skateboarding and I did some graffiti and there was like all this early nineties, like counterculture, Jesus, you know, like even the music of the time, like hip hop was insane, like alternative rock and then grunge. And then I started playing drums and got a drum set, started a band. Um, and then we had this little band and like, none of us, this is what's wild. None of us knew we were queer or gay. Sarah was our lead singer and you know, I was playing drums and we had like some dude playing bass and some other kid playing guitar. And like, it wasn't like a thing we talked about. Like we really weren't like tuned in, you know, I would like watch MTV at night and like, even back, I mean, remember, I always, I keep forgetting about this, but fucking Ellen DeGeneres is like this kind of incredible landmark that I forgot was like, that wasn't that long ago. Like it was the mid nineties and she couldn't even like come out, like coming out was this like big fucking deal. We ended up playing shows with Bikini Kill and Team Dresh. And there was like a short, they were on tour and we ended up like opening and playing some shows with them in like Philly, outside of Philly. And, um, and I played with some of these bands like Unwound and these bands that were like Unwound was really a big one for me because they had a female drummer. And I was like blown away. It blew my fucking mind. She's like incredible and she's talented. And she actually lived here. And now we follow each other on social media. And I still like, I don't think I've ever like told her, but I was like, I was in love with her, but not with like a, 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 a sexual way. I was like an 18 year old kid. And I was like, the, basically it was like being around these badass women, ultimately like queer women. Like I went to the team dress show and my mind like melted. And I was like, I, and I couldn't say it then because I had no fucking clue what was going on. I'm standing at this show and it wasn't like, I was like, I identify with that. That is what I identify with. I just like, it was this wild, like full body feeling and just being like, this is where I belong. But I moved to the West coast and I was like skateboarding, playing music, even still at the time. Like I thought I was gay or maybe bisexual. And I was like leaning into this like gay identity. And it wasn't, it wasn't, it, it wasn't it, you know, I can't explain it. But I had started bike messengering and I was like way femier, like I was wearing mini skirts and more eyeliner and makeup. And like, even then too, I was, it's so funny. I didn't think like, I'm going to try to do this androgynous identity. And like, I just remember talking to a woman I was dating at the time and I just kind of came out and I was like, I think I'm a woman and she didn't freak out or anything. And we kind of talked about it a little bit. And then like, I went to therapy. I mean, literally I just was like, there was a free clinic in the mission. It was like a gender spectrums clinic or something. And I was like, I just need to talk. Like, and they were like, well, there's therapy and you can come and talk to, and talk to a therapist. And I went to therapy for a while, like months. And really just like figured this out. It wasn't cycling that kind of steered me into this, but you know, having kind of had again, like going through and these things weren't like phases, but like having been in these like queer bands and and then 
I didn't identify with like cisgender and straight. And then, yeah, once I started like talking about it and then in therapy, kind of figured it out. And then I was like, holy crap, well, what am I going to do about this? And then the therapist was like, there, you know, you can do whatever you want. You don't have to do anything. You know, you can, you know, it's it just like an exploration of everything. You could be, a, you can cross dress, you cannot, you can take hormones, like you can do this. And um, I started hormone therapy. Again, this wasn't like right away. It wasn't like I went in and then they were like, oh, cool, you're trans, here's a prescription. And that's like also a myth. You talk about defending your defending your regulations i love that because i'm gonna be like yeah there's not like a place in the world where you can just like walk in and get a prescription for hormones it's a process and there's a lot of work both personal work and then you know there's hurdles to jump through it depends on the city and state you live in and it's all but i started bike messengering and then was still playing in like punk rock and hardcore bands and bike messengering and then figuring out my identity <laughs> And then through bike messaging, I was like, I like riding my bike fast. I'm pretty good at riding my bike fast. And I was on hormone placement therapy. You know, I was taking estrogen, spironolactone, all this stuff. And so I started <laughs> racing some local bike races and um, did some men's and women's racing in the Bay Area. And all this, like when I did women's racing, I mean, you know, I was getting my ass kicked too in the women's racing. And I wasn't even like an elite or in a pro at that point. I was still like a new bike racer doing like category three, you know, the middle level intermediate races, just getting my ass kicked. I mean, literally people were yelling faggot and cross dresser at me. I mean, at the races and this is in the Bay area. And it's funny because you think like, Oh, the Bay area, San Francisco, super gay, super liberal. No, it's actually like a pretty macho, very heteronormative place. You know, it's, it's really wild. And particularly the Bay Area, largely, and in the 90s. Again, talk about Lance Armstrong. This is like when Lance Armstrong won his first tour in 99. And that was like when I started bike racing. It was a very macho, very straight, white, male. You know, women were still second or third class citizens in pro bike racing. Um, and uh, cycling, like, I didn't find my identity through cycling you know i found my identity and came to it on my own but through cycling it really saved my life because when i was really struggling with my transition like and then particularly the racing part it wasn't even bike racing that saved me it was really like riding and and then i ended up moving to portland in 2001 and you know i was racing women's races for a year or two until that the guidelines change and i got that tap of the shoulder and over race and it was like challenging but like fulfilling it really in hindsight again i wasn't like doing this thing to validate my identity but in hindsight it could be like right doing women's racing validated my identity and provided some kind of like cornerstone to not my identity but just my feeling of safety and like purpose in the world my purpose isn't to be a bike though now my purpose is kind of be a bike racer and advocate and do this work in the industry but Really, my identity as a human being and as a woman, as a transgender woman, like being able to do that and race with other women was like, it really helped me validate my identity. At the beginning, we said, hey, sci-fi is spoken here. And you said, oh, and, <laughs> and you said you're here for it. So I'm just wondering, what do you, in, in sci-fi, nerd, geek culture, whatever, what are you grooving to right now? Oh, Even I with the travel schedule that you got. What are you grooving to right now? So I, I, this last two years, I have not been watching shows. I haven't been doing shit. I stopped playing video games 
gosh, oh, a while ago, like a decade ago. Cause I just like, as cycling became more of a career and more serious, I was like, I don't have the time. I can't, I can't stay up till four in the morning playing video games, mass effect. <laughs> I played all the mass effects and played them all the way through. And I'm kind of a completionist. So I just like, I just love being immersed in the story and like these other worlds. Um, I haven't been watching a lot of shows. I did just fire up the new Lord of the Rings series. And like the third episode came out last Friday and I literally just watched the third episode last night. And like, I've always loved Lord of the Rings. Like that was kind of a big one for me. I love like fantasy stuff. Sci-fi. I really, I read all the expanse books. I really enjoyed the expanse series. Like I think a lot of, I'm the type that like, you know, I don't hate on, like, I'm not like, oh, it doesn't, it's not pure to the books or the movie is different than the, you know, than the books. I'm like, no, I'm enjoying this, like, for what it is. Like, they're adapt, they're all adaptations. Um, I'll tell you what, The Expanse is yeah. my jam. I just started on the novels. Oh, yeah. I did they're a TV series and it was, no, I was blown away. Yeah, it was good. I recently got done binging the entire series and it was, I was like, okay, these are books. I got to get these novels now. Oh, yeah. The Expanse is great. There's something else that I really, really liked. Let me let me think for a second. Um, oh gosh, oh, get, what are you jamming on right now? Like right uh, now, right now for for me, right now. I mean, all the new Star Trek series are coming up. Strange New Worlds. I got started with that. Mm. The new se- the new season of Lower Decks. All in that. Loved it. I just oh, yeah. watched one episode of Lower Decks. On the plane back from Finland, I think. And I was like, oh, this is great. Like, this is hilarious. So that's something I'll like, I'll put lower decks on my iPad. So when I do fly or travel, I'll watch a couple episodes. But, but my bomb thing has been, yeah. and the and the season just ended, and the next season's not coming out for like about 18 months. It's for all mankind. Uh. And that has been, that's Ooh. been my jam from the beginning. And right. this last season was really explosive. And I'm in... I'm interested to see what the early 2000s are going to look like in that timeline because if it's anything, especially like seasons two and three, they're going to take a lot of things that we both know because we're both we were both very well into our lives yeah. at that age and twist it. Yeah, and interesting. Those are things that things have been jammed on. But for you, exit question: Where do you find your trans joy? Where Honestly, do you find that beautiful life now. I've been finding it in the community that we have built at all these cycling events and um, truly, you know, like I have a really good, you know, I have my close friends and my close family and, and, and they're everywhere. I mean, I spend a lot of time in LA and I have close friends and family there. I've been spending a hell of a lot of time in Arkansas and truthfully, like I have really tight friends and family in Arkansas now, you know, and this like queer, like <laughs> this really truly racially diverse ethnically and and even like politically diverse crew of people like the joy i'm finding in the community that we have at these events and gravel events specifically you know like it's still really different at sanctioned you know uci races or usa cycling races or usa triathlon races you go to these sanctioned races the vibe and the feeling in the community and the feeling of that is so different. It can have the same people there and it's just a different scene going to these gravel events. And this is why gravel has exploded in popularity is they are just like, 
we don't have a sanctioning body. We don't have a book of rules we have to follow. We really, truly want to make this inclusive. We want it to be diverse. We want it. We want to evolve. We want to grow. We want to heal. What do we want to do? And, you know, this is a lot of work I do. I consult with these. But anyways, I'm like, yeah, just welcome everybody and listen to them. Ask them what they want. Ask queers what they want. Ask people of color what they want. Ask, you know, trans folks what they want. And they'll tell you. And then just do that. And do it at your event. And then, yeah, there will be a bike race. Great. And, like, that's happening now. And so that's what I'm going to talk about. The joy is now. I mean, literally, Finland was a unique, like, kind of wild, cool experience. But Steamboat Gravel the weekend before was incredible. Uh, I did Unbound in Emporia, Kansas for the first time. Incredible. Like, there's so many people that are so critical of, the, of these events. And, oh, and there's always a complaint, whether it's a sporting complaint or a DEI complaint or whatever. And I'm like, I'm really all about finding joy now. I'm too old. I'm too tired. I'm going to these events, and I'm enjoying every every minute of this. And it is largely because the orgs and the people I'm working with at the events are like manifesting the, 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 the desires and the needs of these marginalized communities. And they're like listening. So it is funny because I'll have events be like, well, we're not there yet. I'll suggest something. We'll have a conversation. You know, it might be about policies or regulations or just the event. Well, we're, we're not there yet. And I'm like, you're we, no, it's now like it's happening. There's not a big, chasm to leap to make events truly inclusive like it's all happening now and you're missing the boat i mean that's the thing i i don't actually get this is what's wild the the turfs of the world and these organizations i will not name and even on my social media and my internet and my email i don't actually get a lot of like negativity or hate I do get some for sure. You can find them. They're easy. They're all, you know, you can go to some of my Instagram posts and people are like, you're not a woman. Why are you on that podium? You're stealing from girls. You're a horrible person. I don't get a lot of that because I just meet it with kindness and love. I literally, I'm like, anytime I get that, you know, it's so easy to dispel any of this shit just being like, you know, my version of the world is everyone included. And yeah, like that includes in elite world level competition and, and, I just want to see more people in the sport. Don't we want more women competing? Would you want to line up with three to five women in a pro bike race like it's been for the last 10 years? Or would you rather have 20 or 30? I'm wa- I want you to come back because we need to hear more about this. We, we didn't even talk more. about F1. We didn't talk about <laughs> oh, sci-fi. Next time we're going to, next time, uh, I'm going to tell you what. End of the season F1 review right after. Okay. I want you, I want you coming back right after okay. we go to. Right after we get out of Abu Dhabi, talk about the silly season, all the other stuff, I want you back. Maybe. But I, will, <laughs> yeah. but I also will say this. It has been great having you here, but more importantly, it's great having your voice in this conversation because a lot of voices are needed, and it's good to see someone in a sport that I, that I not only follow, I participate in directly, who's having these, who's having these conversations. And... And I hope they continue. And also, there's another thing. I want to ride a bike with you. Yeah, let's do it. I want to. I want to ride. Where do you live? Where are you live? I live, in, I live in Connecticut. You come oh. east. I'm gonna find you. you or even better yet, cycle- have- this year in Hartford Cyclocross National Championships, Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, in December, I'm. Um, I'm. Um, 
I may or may not be racing it, but I will definitely be there. And I was already thinking like, okay, this is kind of the issue too. At sanctioned events at a national championship, I'm not going there to make a big political statement. However, I'm like, well, how can I do like a queer meetup or like a LGBTQIA like um, hangout? Well, you and know what? We're going to make it happen. Let's do, the, let's do the podcast there. Let's do it. Let's yeah. do it there. Yeah, you, we could. You come on the podcast. I'm going to come out live. Bring the camera gear and we do this and, and we do this at nationals and we do this. And yeah. let, and I'm also just to know Austin Killips. Yes. If you're there, yeah. if you're there, if you're there, I want you there too. I want you sitting in on oh, this. Austin will be there. Fuck yeah. And then we can have a, and we can have a, a, we can just kick it around, have a little round table, but also give people a piece of this story and also let people actually see yeah. trans people in front of you, just talking about themselves Molly Cameron, thank you for being on the Transporter Room. It has been an honor. Thanks. I can't wait to get beamed out of here. I'm so curious if my molecules are going to be like, like I, when I get, Don't worry. We'll I get, get beamed out, if I'm like feel different or anything. We'll get you there. We're going to beam you back down to Portland. All right. And thanks. thanks and a thank thanks, you so much. Special thanks to Molly Cameron and Leo Baker for joining us on the Transporter Room this week. But before we go, a thought from yours truly. An anniversary has passed recently. It was one year ago, last Saturday, September 10th, 2021, when an MMA fighter from Portland, Oregon, named Alana McLaughlin, stepped in the cage to face Celine Prevost, a boxing specialist from France. It would be the MMA debut for both on the Combate Global card that night. For McLaughlin, it was placing her name in history the first transgender woman to get in the cage since Fallen Fox left it in 2014. The rear naked choke that McLaughlin employed to win that night in round two should have breathed life into a career and more action and fights to come. Instead, it's been one year. Whereas McLaughlin put it on her Twitter, it's been a goddamn year. Alana, I understand and agree with your frustration. But this is another example of how transphobia in sport has gotten out of control. If it's not MMA, it's cycling, or it's swimming, or it's giving a trivia answer in the form of a question, or it's most recently snooker. (laughs) How farcical. But the thing that sticks in my craw about Alana McLaughlin's situation is that before the fight, during the fight, after the fight, even a year later, so many people still have so much to say about a fighter who won her debut but still stands a year later at 1-0. You know, many people said that Alana's unfair and that Alana's really not that good in yada, yada, yada. And people who continue to say, even to this day, she'd she'd ruin MMA for women. You know, people who have something to say, I say, pick a lane. Or better yet, pick up your phone, have your people, call her people, work out a deal, and pick up a fight date. To McLaughlin's credit, she hasn't been sitting on her tuckers. She's still training, and she's still waiting. She's still putting the work in, but 
I get that nagging feeling that when I think about Alana McLaughlin, I'm also thinking about Patricio Manuel. And he's waited even longer for fight number two. Now, some of this I put on individual fighters in this case, who, if you're in the weight classes of either Manuel or McLaughlin, especially if you have something to say, there's an answer. Pick up the phone, get past the hysteria, learn the facts, and set a fight date. But also I look at governing bodies in every sport. And more and more, these governing bodies are giving in to knee-jerk reactions of those for whom sport is a small part of a larger play to shuffle transgender people out of public life as a whole. And they keep falling for the okey-doke. Whether it's the UCI and FINA with the Emily Bridges rule, the Leah Thomas rule, whether it's many other governing bodies who are lining up for more draconian regulation and more ways to say, if you're trans, especially if you're a transgender woman, there's no way we're going to let you play in part because we're afraid of the transphobapalooza crowd picketing us, or we're afraid of Posey Parker showing up at our front doorstep fresh off a plane from the UK or whatever else. It is time for governing bodies to start defending the inclusion and the regulations that they've claimed to champion in the past, and they have championed in the past, and not revert to fear. The science doesn't support hysteria, neither does the scoreboard. But as you run to try and placate those for whom sport is a small part of larger issues and larger strategies for them, who loses? In the case, often, of course, trans athletes lose, but as we recently saw in Utah, a cisgender child got literally dragged through a regulatory process because another parent complained, and by law she could, and an investigation had to happen. It would be laughable if it wasn't so serious and sad. So in the meantime, Lana McLaughlin trains and waits. Same way Patricio Manuel trains and waits. While governing bodies say, and those who have something to, who consistently have something to say, say, well, too bad. I think it's shameful. Also a note to those who have a problem with a transgender woman giving a trivia answer in the form of a question. Jeopardy's Tournament of Champions is coming up, and yes, Amy Schneider will be there. Deal with it. Transphobia. It's why we just can't have nice things. If there's something you want to see, or someone you want to see here at the Transporter Room, please leave a message on our Twitter page or Facebook page or at our Instagram page, Transporter Room 10 Forward. Remember, everything I do at the Transporter Room, I do for all of you, the people who support us. That's the show for this week. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb. 
Live long and prosper and steady as she goes. I'll catch you all next week.